You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everyone, it's Boomer Esaias, and I am so delighted to have you join us here on our all-new Game Time podcast. Now, our guest today is women's basketball living legend as both a player and a coach. You know, her South Carolina Gamecocks are the defending national champions, and back in the day, believe it or not, she was a two-time national player of the year at Virginia, and then later became a six-time WNBA All-Star. It is my pleasure to welcome Hall of Famer Dawn Staley, a coach Welcome to our Game Time podcast. And first, congratulations on recently receiving the Women's Sports Foundation Billie Jean King Leadership Award. What does that honor mean to you? Billie Jean King, I mean, she's she's an icon. I mean, she's she's the one that I credit with um, raising, raising the bar for all girls and women that play sports. She's the one that's been pounding the pavements for, for you know, 50 years, and for for the tennis great that that she was, I think her biggest achievement is Title IX, and raising raising the bar to make sure that we get every opportunity that our male counterparts get. So to to receive an award and and, and her namesake means means the world to me, means that, you know, hopefully that I can impact someone in a way that she's impact basically every female that's playing sports to this day. In your acceptance speech, you told the story of how your late mother, Estelle, reprimanded you for trying to move recruiting interviews away from your house to a different venues. What was your mom's message? Um, my, my mom's message, you know, never be ashamed of where you grow up. Um, never be ashamed of your family. This is who you are. Stay rooted and grounded in, in where you found, you know, what, what your foundation is. And, you know, to be quite honest, I didn't, it wasn't that I was embarrassed or anything about where I grew up. I think where you live is sacred grounds. And it's for people that, people that, that you know, that you love, um, so I didn't really look at it like my mom was. I wasn't ashamed of where I grew up because my mom had my mom kept our house clean, nice, um, presentable. But I thought it was just for us and family members. So I I learned a value, valuable lesson. So anywhere I go, anywhere I go, any country, I make it well known that I'm from the projects, the Raymond Rosen projects of North Philly, all because of my mother and, and us having that moment when I was going through my, my, my college decision. You know, you were always one who let your playing do your talking. So how did you overcome 
the natural shyness in order to coach, communicate, and make your voice heard on the important issues that you feel need to be talked about? You know, Boomer, as I, as I get older and older, and it's, it's so weird that I, I, I become more of my mother. Like, I, I, I know I'm my mother's child because she spoke up and she spoke out um, on, on unfairness, injustices, um, and I just feel like it, it took me a while to really find who I am. And it does take life experiences for you to feel, you know, to figure out what life is all about. And if there's somebody out there that is um, being unjustly uh, arrested, if there's somebody out there that's uh, being treated unfairly, um, if there are inequities out there, um, I feel like I have a platform to speak on their behalf because they're voiceless. And because of that, because of my upbringing, because of who was my mentor in my house, which was my mother, I owe that to her. What did you tell the South Carolina State Legislature when you addressed them after they finally removed the Confederate flag from the state capitol in 2015? Well, I, I, I just felt like it was, you know, it was a shame that it took nine lives to be lost um, for what the flag represents. And I know it represents a lot of things to a lot of different people, um, you know, but I, I was happy that uh, Nikki Haley, who was the governor at that time, um, took it to the legislators and the legislators uh, really um, came together and unified um, for the Charleston Nine. And then for, for a bigger cause of, you know, what it meant to so many other people, so many black people who felt like, you know, it, it equates to slavery. And it was a great day for our state. So I, I, I hope we continue to unify and create a space in which we all feel like we're, we're, we're treated equally and fairly. You know, seven-time WNBA All-Star Brittany Griner recently marked her 32nd birthday in a Russian prison where she's being wrongfully detained. Is there anything our podcast listeners can do to add to the pressure for her and of course fellow American political hostage Paul Fallon to be released from these Russian prisons? I mean, you just you just asked a question. I think what we can what we need to continue to do is raise awareness or raise hell to make sure they're you know they're released. Um, I know Brittany personally. Um, I, I read a lot about Paul Wheeling and, and his family. I, I do think that Brittany has the star power um, to, to bring people home with her. I know President Biden, um, Secretary Blinken, they're all doing incredible work behind the scenes to get them home as soon as possible. And I just pray to God that, that it happens sooner than later. Um, so, you know, on Brittany's 32nd birthday yesterday, I sent her a letter. I'm always posting daily um, that I'm praying for her, that I love her, uh, that I hope she comes home soon. And it's gonna take it's gonna take a miracle, you know. But you know, miracles are are, are seen almost every day, and I just hope God bestows one on on Brittany very soon. Well said, Don. Well said. So we're talking with Dawn Staley here on the Game Time Podcast. And Dawn, you know, many coaches like to consider themselves surrogate parents, but you claim 
your role is actually to balance out the players, parents, especially those who don't like to see their kids struggle. So how does this approach actually play itself out? I'm inclusive. Um, I, I know a lot of coaches don't like that, that parent dynamic in the, in the sanctity of their team. I'm, I'm a little different. Um, I want our, our voices as coaches and as parents, the biggest voices in their heads. Um, if it's not us coaches, us coaches, then it's their parents. And if you have a relationship with the parents, you can feed the parents kind of what you want them to tell their children when they take their parent hats off. I mean, they can keep their parents' hats on, but ultimately we all want them to, to succeed. We all want them to be the checkoff goals and to get the things that they want in life. We have a different way of doing it. Like I, when I was growing up, my, you know, my, my parents were like disciplinarians, strict, you know, they, they allow you to, to fail a little bit, but they didn't spare the ride, you know, and forcing mm -hmm. you back into success. Um, whereas I think parents nowadays, um, they themselves have probably had it so bad that they don't want their, their, their children to feel any kind of that, you know, that stress. And I'm, I'm the, I'm the opposite. I, I just think, I just think that when, when, when young people fail, they either gonna, they're either gonna swim or sink. And, and more times than not, they have a lot more in them. That's when you tap in the very thing that their parents really gave them to, to swim. And, you know, it, it takes a while for the parents to get, to get on board with it. But in the very end, they see where we were going with it because, you know, when you go out to the real world, when you go to the WNBA, it's so competitive that you're going to have some bad days and how you respond to those bad days is either going to have, you're going to have some longevity in the league or you're going to be out of the league. You know, I'm thinking about one of your tough love success stories is Asia Wilson. We've had her on the show and she's a lovely young lady and a tremendous athlete. And she's a WNBA champion, two-time league MVP. And I'm thinking about what is more important to you, your own success or watching somebody like Asia when you finally got her into your program and to see what she's ascended to and the fact that you actually have a statue outside of Colonial Life Arena of Asia Wilson. There, there is no more joy than to see your players have success. Um, for, for myself, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an old stogie. Like, I, I've done that. I've done... <laughs> I've experienced some great success in my playing career and I've experienced success in my coaching career, but there is nothing, nothing more gratifying than to see someone like someone like Asia Wilson, who I coached, who I nurtured, you know, who I showed tough love to, who I, you know, who I kid, I, I kid it with because she, she only knows private school. Like she went to <laughs> private school like her entire life. And I'm from I'm from North Philly, so I try to say I'm gonna I, I need to take you to North Philly, drop you off, pick you up in a week, and you'll 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 rid yourself of everything that you learned in private school. Um, but I mean, I always joke around with her, but she is quite incredible. The human being that she is, she's the ultimate competitor, and she wants to be great, and she doesn't mind working on the off season to. to, to establish herself as the world's best basketball player. You're right. Well, she's developed into a megastar for sure. So now tell me, 
What does the future hold for Gamecocks senior Aaliyah Boston, who was last year's Naismith College uh, Award winner, Player of the Year winner, I should say. You have also three other returning starters. I mean, it's like you're bringing back your whole national championship team. So there it comes with a lot of pressure, but I'm just wondering who is the next megastar out of that group? I mean, I mean, Aaliyah's coming back, so you got to give, you got to tip your hat to her. Um, but sometimes when you have someone who's like a, you know, a, a player of the year, you tend to forget about all the other players that she lines up with. So I know Aaliyah would love to share in that spotlight, um, but you got a core group of, of players. You got Bree Bill, you got Zaya Cook, you got Victoria Saxton, um, we got a couple of freshmen, in, I think, and then you got Camila Cardoza, who who is 6'7", and has has gotten so much better. I think what what what's happening here at, at South Carolina is we we they surround them we, we surround them with pros, people who are like minded, who are highly motivated, and they compete. They help it's a healthy competition between all of them. So they all compete to see who's who's gotten better um in the off season and bringing it into this season. So you, it's a hodgepodge of people that could step up on any given night um, to, you know, to, to compete with, with the Leah Boston for that National Player of the Year. You know, it's amazing. You just list some of your players there, six foot seven. I can't believe where women's basketball is today from when you first started or when I first started or realizing that it was actually real and that you guys were pretty damn talented. You said you hated recruiting. Now, I'd, I'd hate to see what happened if you love recruiting and what kind of team you would have. So there has to be a certain type of player you look for to come play at South Carolina and for you. What kind of player are you looking for? Well, I mean, I, this is, I'm starting my 22nd year um, coaching. So I've, I've evolved like 20, 20 years ago. I would say I would take any player. You know, as long as they're talented, I'm going to take them, whether they come with – you know, a whole lot of baggage or not, I'm taking them. Because I was young, and I was like, I got I got stamina, I got energy to help any young person, even if it's at the detriment of the rest of the team. I, I would like to help young people. But you learn and you grow. In, in year 22, here's the type of player that I'm looking for. I'm looking for um, one that's talented, obviously, um, but one that's coachable. And how do you, how do you know, how do you find out if, if one is coachable? I I look at how they treat their parents. Like you you're you're gonna have to respect their parents. That parent uh child relationship is really important. It's something that we look at we look at like probably it's it's half of making the decision of of, of recruiting a young person. Cause here's why. Um when you come here to South Carolina, we're gonna ask you to do some things out of the love of the game. And if you don't love the game, then you're probably gonna you're probably gonna curse us out. <laughs> uh, but if you if you don't love the game and you respect your your parents, you're gonna you're gonna see us as a parent figure, and you're not gonna disrespect us. You're gonna do what we ask you to do because you know it's gonna take you to the next level. So we've we've added that element and that dynamic to to our recruiting because I. I found myself recruiting and and getting players to come who aren't um, respectful to their parents. I, I found myself spending a whole lot of time trying to get them right versus the ones that are doing right. 
they need my energy. Like they need, they were missing my energy because I was spending so much time with the person that's trying to get, you know, trying to get them at a good place, you know, where they can, you know, they can see the world a little bit differently and, and hopefully find some success in that. So I want to put my energy into the players who are really in tune with, with listening, with learning, with executing and wanting to be pros. You know, I hope other players don't steal your idea because it sounds pretty good to me. All right, we're just getting warmed up with Dawn Staley. When we come back, we'll show you why the worst thing anyone can do is tell her it can't be done when game time continues right after this. Welcome back to Game Time, everyone. You know, Dawn Staley may have passed up open shots in her day, but she's never passed on confronting challenges that meant something important to her. You know, I just wonder about some of these challenges. At the University of Virginia, your basketball skills were instantly evident by everybody, the coach. They all wanted you there. But you were challenged academically. It sounds a lot like me at the University of Maryland right around the same time, uh, like never before. In fact, you were threatened by being kicked out of school. So how did you respond to that situation? I'm thinking that you were probably felt isolated as well. I did. I mean, going to the U University of Virginia, it was an incredible challenge from an academic standpoint. I, I don't think I was prepared just my just my, my my high school. I mean, I did what I had to do. I got great grades in high school. But I wasn't challenged to the depth of, of, of what Virginia challenges you um, from an academic standpoint. So I did. I, I was confronted, you know, by deans to say if I didn't perform at a certain level, I was going to get kicked out. So I've never been in a situation where I was going to be without basketball because being kicked out meant that I had to go another route and not have basketball in my life. So what I did was I, I tapped into the very thing that I utilized on the court, which is compete. And I never, I never looked at academics as a competition until I was faced with you know, basketball being taken away from me because I wasn't performing at a high level. So, you know, there were a lot of resources. And, and quite honestly, when you come from a place like North Philly, the projects in North Philly, you, you don't want any help from anybody. You feel like you can do it all. Like, I don't need help. You know, help meant like you're weak to some to, to me when I was a young person. And boy, boy, did I had a lot, a lot of learning to do because there were people there that could read your papers. There were people there that could discuss topics that you had difficulty comprehending. Um, there were people there that actually could take notes for you so you could pay attention in class. So I had all these resources there right in front of me, but I was stubborn um, and I thought I knew it all and I thought I could figure everything out until I was faced with that challenge of you, you might, if you have one more bad semester, you're out of here. So I tapped into the very thing that has has been with me my entire life, which is, you know, my competitive nature. You know, when you graduated uh, Virginia, there were no women's pro leagues here in the States. As a matter of fact, you were informed that you had not made the cut for the U.S. women's Olympic team because A, you were too short, B, you didn't have any international experience, and that led you to play pro ball in Spain. So why did you stick it out in Spain despite the homesickness? Yeah. Um, I, 
here's, I mean, I got to go back to, you know, to the time that I lived in the projects. Um, and I was probably as young as eight, nine, 10 years old. The, the only time that I, I've, I'd seen women play on TV was in the Olympic games, gold medal game, and in the national championship game collegiately. Um, I wanted to be a gold medalist and I wanted to be a national champion. I, I did not, I came close in college to being a national champion, but we came up short. But then I had this other lifelong dream of being an Olympian. And when I got cut in 1992, I was going to do anything possible to ensure that I wouldn't be cut again from an Olympic team. So if it meant that, if it meant that I didn't have enough international experience, I was going to go overseas and, and play and suck it up. And, mm. you know, I, and it, it, it kept me there. My goal kept me there, kept me in Segovia, Spain, living out of my suitcase because I would, I would wash my clothes, <laughs> fold them up, put them back in my suitcase and I'm ready to go at any time. And I did that for an entire year. And, you know, and I don't, I mean, the thing that kept me there was like, I, I gotta get, I gotta be an Olympian and I gotta yeah. get a gold medal. So, you know, everybody needs something, you know, that will help guide them, that help them persevere through moments in which they feel like they're, they're their weakest. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, the good news is that you went on to win three of those Olympic gold medals as a player. And then, of course, you won a gold medal as a coach. Now, another set of challenges, albeit positive ones, hit back in 2000. Now, this is amazing to me, Dawn, because I didn't realize this until I really looked into your, your background and your resume. You're still playing full time in the WNBA. And then out of the blue, you're invited to become the head coach at Temple in your native Philadelphia, of course. So you originally said no. And then you changed your mind. And now not only are you a WNBA professional basketball player, you decide to say yes to Temple and to take Temple out of the dark ages of women's basketball and bring them to national prominence. How do you deal with both jobs being able to be successful the way you were? Well, I think anytime you go into like difficult situations, like I, I did not want to give up basketball. I did not want to give up being a pro. And I told Temple University that I, I'm a basketball player. I'm a professional basketball player. I want to continue to play as long as I can play. And they were like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> um, and so I, I think it was really important for me to hire people who really understood what I was trying to accomplish and people who were experienced enough to, to help me. Like, I didn't want them to coach for me. I didn't want the position to be a namesake position. I wanted them to help me learn and grow how to be a college coach. And I, I got I got a great staff when I first got into college coaching. Um, it had to be great or else I could not be able to do what I what I was doing. So I, I, I did it for six years. I coached and played for six years. And I was able to do that because I, I found people who were more experienced than me in coaching. I found people who were willing to do the, the, the small and big things. Um, I found people who were, were used to working and working hard and efficiently. And that was the only way that I was able to do it is a, is a great staff. 
What an absolutely crazy six years that must have been. You know, Dawn, perhaps your first obstacles to overcome was growing up in a tough neighborhood. Let me ask you, in your childhood imagination, where did you think you could end up besides playing point guard for your beloved 76ers? <laughs> well, I, I mean, here's the thing. I, I don't think, I think, I don't, I, I know where I grew up wasn't terrible. Like it was terrible to probably people who were on the outside looking in. Um, but I knew there was something else outside of the walls of of the Raymond Rosen housing projects. I knew there was another, you know, there's another life outside of uh, outside of it. I didn't really know how I was going to be able to experience that until until in the eighth grade, I got my first um, letter of interest from a college. Like it it blew my mind. I wasn't even thinking about college in eighth grade. I wasn't thinking about anything besides playing on the playground, my next my next basketball game or my next tackle football game or my next baseball game or my, or my next softball game. But when I got that letter, I knew instantly that basketball was going to be the thing that will allow me to grow and see 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 the world. And I was so happy that um, one, I just followed my instincts. Once I got that, it was instinctual that, hey, this this round ball, this big round ball is going to be the very thing that will allow allow me to see the world and not even see the world. It is to to play basketball and see in the world because I could care less about seeing the world if it wasn't a ninety foot foot uh, basketball court. But then you grow. And now um, I, I love seeing new cultures. I love going to different places and, and, and I don't need a basketball court. I can, I can go walk around in a different country and really appreciate that. But if I didn't experience that as a basketball player, it, it, it wouldn't interest me. And I couldn't take these stories back to my family. I couldn't, I couldn't verbalize these stories to my players in hopes to instill in them uh, an incredible imagination, a dream, and to step in those dreams and make it a reality. So in 1999, Purdue's Carolyn Peck became the first black female head coach to win a national championship. Six years later, she gave you a piece of her title-winning net to you as a gift. What did that gesture mean to you, and how are you trying to pay that forward? I mean, it, it was – I've been very fortunate that – Things have happened to me in my career that have have helped me, like helped me in the in the near future, in the far future. When Carolyn Peck gave me her piece of the net of her 1999 national championship net, it was the very thing that little piece of nylon gave me hope that it's going to happen, like it's going to happen for for me as another black coach and for our program. So um, actually two years later, she gave it to me in 2015. Two years later, we won a national championship in Dallas, Texas. And later on that that spring, because I had to do it in person. At that time, she was coaching. She was back in the coaching because she was commentating when she gave me the, the net. Two years later, she's coaching. So I saw her on the recruiting trail, and I I waved her over, 
And I thanked her so much for for sharing with me that piece of the net. I, I gave it back. I keep it pinned on my one of my social media's account just to see that. But also felt like she had to help me find the next person to give my piece of the net to. And we could never figure out who that would be until until maybe two years later. And two years later, two years later, I said, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna cut my net up and give it to all the black division one coaches um in the, you know, in Division One college basketball. And I, I, I know that every single one of them will not win a national championship. That's just that's just the way it is. Yeah. But but their national championship could be um coaching a first generation college graduate. I think that's national championship quality um experience for them. Or or keeping that piece of the net on their desk and then they have to sit across one of their you know, one of their players um if they had a career ending injury to find the words to say to them. Um or you know, just the everyday woes that come with college coaching, because it's it's a it's a it's a job in which never you know every every day presents a different challenge. But that that piece of nonline for me was hope, and that's what people need nowadays if they're in any kind of situation that they don't deem they're going to have a great outcome. That's a great story. All right, we'll be back to elicit Dawn Staley's thoughts on bridging the gender gap across the basketball landscape. Stay with us. All right, welcome back, everyone. Reflecting on the childhood hours she spent at the playground, Dawn Staley said, my advice is to play against the guys. That gave me the heart to play against anybody. I'm glad they were rough. Guys seem to be born with basketball skills. Girls have to work to develop them. I don't know why. So why now, since you are a coach and a very successful basketball player, do you think you have to develop the skills as a female basketball player? Um one is we have to create separation from from our competition um and i i do believe in that, and i don't believe it's just to to females i think guys have to definitely um work on the fundamentals of the game and their skill set because everybody's getting better everybody's got a trainer everybody is you know have the hopes and dreams of making it to be a professional and the, the more prepared you are with being fundamentally sound, the more prepared you are in, in investing in your, 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 your talent. And it's not just, it's not just dribbling the basketball or shooting the basketball. You have to be a student of the game. You got to watch yourself. You have to be critical. You have to watch the NBA. You got to watch the WNBA. You got to watch college basketball, both uh, women's and men's. You got to watch, you got to watch your, 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 your siblings, even in a, you know, even in a, you know, a, a, a eight-year-old game, like there is something that you can learn about the game um, and stay engaged in the game to continue to sharpen your skills. That's, that's with anything, you know, but for us as, as women, I do think those tools can get sharpened a lot better when you're playing against someone who's quicker, who's stronger, who actually thinks they, they're better than you. 
yeah. <laughs> um, and playing with the, you know, playing with the guys. So let me ask you about your dream team experience in 1996, the Olympics in Atlanta. And you later said you knew what was at stake. What exactly was at stake for women's basketball coming out of the Olympics that year? Well, um, you have to understand that USA Basketball and the yeah, David Stern um, was a big part of uh, making sure that because the Olympic Games were going to be played in our home country in Atlanta, they paid for our team, the U.S. national team, to train for one year prior to the 96 Olympic Games. And within those years, as we got closer to, to um, the competition, we learned that there were going to be two women's professional leagues birthed out of our success. Like, and that has never really happened. We, we've had one league that's tried several times, but there hasn't been two leagues that people were going to pour into financially to make sure that women get to play professionally in the States. So we felt a, a tremendous amount of pressure that our success, depending on whether or not these leagues were going to be a go. So not only did we have to win the gold, we were playing for our livelihood. We were playing for an opportunity to realize our dreams right here in the States. And I'm, I'm proud to say from 90, 1996 until now, we still have a women's professional league in the WNBA. The, the other league folded within two years, but the WNBA is still alive and kicking. And that's why every level from, from, elementary school to grade school to college that WNBA carry has been dangled in front of us and all of and our sports our sport has gotten so much better and the players in it have gotten so much more talented and all because we we, we saw you know what women can do in the primes of their careers you know, another major inflection point for you, and I, and, I, and I appreciate everything you did in 1996, you gotta think about this in that kind of way when I say this to you, is when your contract negotiations with the University of South Carolina last year, you said, I'm gonna risk it all. I'm gonna ask for equal pay. And that's another inflection point for you, and obviously it's a very powerful um, point for you, and why did you say that? I, I said it because, one, it was the right thing to do. Um, two, um, our, our program at the time had sustained, sustained success. I'm talking, I've, I've been here for 14 years. We've had success for 10 of those 14 years. And then, it, you know, my male counterpart, not, you know, not to, I don't want to downplay anything, but, um, he hadn't had this, you know, similar success. He didn't have half of the success that our program had, but yet when I when I looked at the numbers, he he got a bigger raise than, than me over the time that he's been here in South Carolina versus the time that I've been here in South Carolina, and I just think that was a huge discrepancy, and it just didn't sit well with me. So I I I did risk it all because I they could have said no. Um, they could have said, you know, we're, we're not going to ever give you that for whatever reason, for whatever reason. 
Um, and I just said no. And I, and I, and I decided to do this. I decided that, um, to go with, with, with a lawyer versus my agent because my agent had had several negotiations with, with our AD and they knew each other. So, you know, in order for you to take the next step, you probably had to get another voice in the room, another voice. And I thought that, you know, doing that, getting a different voice in the room, um, will create some movement that hadn't been that way in all of my negotiations. And don't get me wrong, Boomer, I made a lot of money prior mm -hmm. to asking, but it wasn't about that. You know, I, I had the strike while the iron's hot. And ultimately it was it was the right thing to do. And I'm I'm so very happy that South Carolina did it, not just for my sake, but there are other women out there who are getting paid less just because they're a woman. And I just can't see, you know, what the big why why? Like <laughs> it's very simple. If you if you're doing the same work and you're more successful than your your counterpart, then you should be paid accordingly. I'll tell you what, Don, you got guts and that's why you're so successful. <laughs> I will tell you that. All right, Don, let's turn to some lighter topics here on the Game Time podcast. You know, your protege, Asia Wilson, she's called you out as an inveterate snacker and connoisseur of junk food. So where did that notorious Don Staley sweet tooth come from and what's your go-to snack on the sidelines? She is, she is so right. Like I, I got a sweet tooth out of this world and, um, and I, everybody around me knows it. So each game day, each game day, for as long as I've been here, uh, our, our managers line up uh, lifesavers all along, <laughs> all along, all along courtside. And, um, and every now and then, I, and it, they're mints too. I like the mints. During okay. the game, I like the mints. Um, because if I had to get into an official every now and then, I, I want to have fresh breath. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. All right, so stop me if you've heard this one before. Your name has been prominently mentioned, along with, of course, Becky Hammond and others, as potential first female head coach in the NBA. Is that a challenge you think is still on the horizon for you? you no, know, no, I, I, I don't. I, I, I don't have any inclination or desire the coach in the NBA nor the WNBA. That's 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 so weird to me, really, because my my passion is young people. Like, really, I, I like to get young people at this stage between eighteen to twenty two year olds uh, who aspire to become professional athletes in the WNBA. Because I know that if they experience um, basketball and their approach under me. I know our league would be safe to be around for hundreds of years. So my passion is with young people. If the league gets younger and younger and younger, I might. I might. Yeah. <laughs> but but right now, my passion is is right here on the collegiate level. All right. So I know Mo Cheeks was your guy on the 76ers. So I want you to think back, and I want you to give me your personal favorite all-time Philadelphia basketball starting five. Now, it could be from the old Warriors days. It could be from the 76ers or any local college team. So who are the starting five that Dawn Staley's putting together? Well, I mean, I do, I do have to go with Mo Cheeks, right? Okay. I mean, I, I got to go with the Sixers who won the, the championship in 83. So I'm going to go with Mo Cheeks. I'm going to go with Andrew Tony. I'm going to go with Dr. J. Yep. I'm going to go with Moses Malone. 
and I'm gonna throw in the old UVA guy, Mark Ivoroni. <laughs> Mark Ivoroni? I would have thought Will Chamberlain. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's just me. So one last final question. I know this refers to the other side of town, as you would put it. But when it comes to Philly cheesesteaks, do you go to Pat, Pat's or Gino's, or do you have a, a favorite of your own? Now, uh, since I moved down to South Carolina, I don't eat meat any, anymore, but I get a lot of people ask me, where should they go? Here's When I ate meat, here's my go-to. I either went to Larry's on City Line or I went to um, Jim's. That's number two on South Street. Yeah. And then Ishka Bibbles on South Street. <laughs> and then and then the fourth one was Delisandro's. You can't go wrong with any one of those. I, I love the way you said Ishka Bibbles. I do. I really <laughs> do. <laughs> all right, all right. Thanks to the great Don Staley for joining us today on Boomer and Science. I'll see you again real soon right here on Game Time with the greatest female skier of all time, Lindsey Vaughn.